Hi, welcome back to another episode of Appalachian Anglican. I'm Caleb, and I'm here with Alex, Johnny, and Daryl. And today, the topic that we're going to be discussing is authority. Authority within the church, authority in basically saying what's going on, and kind of has the final say on what should happen within the church. And uh, I think we're going to go ahead and start off with the idea of what even gives the church the authority, and even what authority does the church use to try to decide what it's going to do and how it's going to overall impact the world. What do you think about it, Alex? When I think about authority and authority in the church, there's a lot of things that go in my mind, honestly. So I've been in different churches, especially when I was part of a a different denomination than I'm part of now. But think about authority is just, you know, the pastor, really. We were an independent church, so we didn't really, we had, you know, we were part of a, a small denomination. There was a bishop over us, and it was described as a bishop just because he was over some of the churches. And now that I'm part of the Anglican church now, there's a whole lot more to authority than just my local church. Right. You know, we did have, like I said, we did have authority over us, but it wasn't, they didn't tell us what to do. Maybe they had the right. I don't know. Maybe. But they didn't, and they weren't going to. So now, being in the church here at Ascension with Father Daryl, you know, he is our authority in the church, but Father Daryl's not the ultimate authority. You know, he has leaders, and he has a bishop over him, and then our bishop has somebody over him. So there's always some kind of authority there. And I think we kind of want to break it down, like, what is that authority, and where does it come from? It's kind of what you're saying you want to talk about. Absolutely. What do you guys think the last thing fish discover is? What's the last thing a fish discovers? I think this is a dad joke, so I'm going to say water. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> the last thing that fish discover is the water that they're swimming in. So if, as you mentioned, Alex, in a lot of American churches, the authority is the congregation. Mm. And the congregation calls and elects its own officers. And the congregation or the leaders, because they're going hand in glove here, will say, well, the Bible is our authority. And you say, why? Well, because God wrote it. Okay, how do you know? Because it says God wrote it. So you get into a whole bit of circular reasoning. And it's a very ahistorical, contemporary form of understanding so that even if they use a term like bishop, it's because it was conferred upon them by that congregation or collection of churches or network or however that thing is organized. Uh, When 30-some-odd thousand different denominations slash networks slash groupings of Protestant churches it's almost impossible to nail down how a term is being used. I think you can break those into larger groups. So instead of 33 or 36,000 denominations, there's really only 9,000 if you classify them by particular traditions that have developed in the past 400 years. But point being, as Caleb mentioned, where's the authority come in? Well, it's in that congregation. And then they will say, we get it from Scripture. And they'll say the Scripture is the authority, but then they interpret the Scripture according to their own particular tradition that they elect people to teach and preach and and emphasize. That is the fundamental definition of schism. Right. I can see, because even looking at it that way, when you start to see different issues and things that can exist in churches individually, that's a good explanation of why, because a group of people can just believe or convince each other that's good and be separate of the body in that way. It's because we're Americans, Caleb. Absolutely. So in in our Bill of Rights, we have the freedom of religion. And so American Christians have just translated that into their church context. So we may not be saying this book of Scripture isn't part of the canon 
or this book of Scripture should be part of the canon. There are groups that do that, right? But take the classic distinction between the Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, where they add in these extra books that were written in the 1800s, and they say, this is the truth, and this is restored, and we have miracles to prove it. And then you look at the way that they are basically rejected by contemporary evangelicals. They'll say, well, no, they're not really part of the church. Well, why? Well, because they don't believe in the Trinity. And you say, well, where'd you get that doctrine of the Trinity from? Well, it's right out of the passages of Scripture. Yes, but the classic Christian definition of the Trinity was articulated by the church in the creeds. So here we have groups of churches that will not adhere to the tradition of the church, but then interject themselves as an authority on how they quantify and measure what's true and what isn't. So I think this is a really pertinent conversation. And when we think about Appalachia, what is the what is one of the bedrock virtues for an Appalachian temperament but independence? Nobody's going to tell us what to do. Nobody's going to tell us what to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Six Semper Tyrannus, you know, right. or uh, don't tread on me. I mean, right. this, yeah. this is Appalachia at its best. Heritage, not hate, right? I mean, this is, this is what it is. But when you look at the Scripture, oh boy, you don't see that flying in Israel. No, you don't. And actually, you know, as I said, I'm in seminary. So I've taken church history class. And what I've learned is people that schismed, you know what they were called? Heretics. Yeah. You know, and that's, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be a heretic. So that's kind of what brought me into the stream that I'm coming into this journey, realizing that if we do things outside of, I use the little word orthodoxy, it gets a little sticky because you start throwing off some stuff and then you start throwing off another. And then what are you left with? It seems like in places where there isn't something to actually say what should be done, someone's just going to fill it in with something else. I see exactly what you're saying. I read when I read the emergence of the Catholic tradition by Yaroslav Pelikan, I realized as I was reading through that, if I lived in the first five centuries of Christian history, I would have been part of one of the schismatic heretical groups because I believed if you weren't holy, then your, your Christian ministry was suspect. There's the Dantonist. Or if you didn't operate in certain spiritual gifts, then you're not really fully filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, there, there are the Montanists. Or to say that salvation is spiritual so I can get to heaven, what happens to the world doesn't matter because the rapture is going to take place. Then we're talking about Gnostic, some form of Gnosticism. All of it. Every contemporary... For Arianism, not so much, but some of the spillover effects of that. But every major heresy that exists in the church today has the power to create large networks and denominations because it's the freedom of religion is enshrined in our Constitution. And we've translated that to mean that when I read the Bible, whatever feeling I have is what it means is what it means is not consistent with the history of the church or the teaching of Scripture canonically, Genesis to Revelation. Yeah, and what, what I've noticed, I'm also an aspirant alongside Alex here at Church of the Ascension, what I've noticed a lot talking to people who are outside of these apostolic churches is they'll talk about the tradition of the church, but they have such a warped view that they'll say, well, yeah, I would have been a Montanist. They were right. Yes. And the Orthodox <laughs> were wrong. <laughs> that's, that's how it goes. You can tell that you're in a schismatic. Now, you could be schismatic and re- retain a measure of orthodoxy, okay? So let's be clear here because you mentioned the word heresy, Alex. Heresy really, at its core, is the elevation of a particular truth to the redefining of other truths so that you distort the fullness of truth. Okay. 
Okay? So you take something that's principally true, but then you start redefining everything else by it instead of keeping it in its own proportion. And so by doing that, you create something that looks very, very similar to what is Orthodox or Catholic. And then you end up, the later trajectory, you can see that it was askew. You can see with the developments that happened three, four, five generations later that there was a problem. And that's when reform has to happen. You have to go back and correct those issues that by that point, people have grown up believing is really what's supposed to be going on. As you mentioned, Johnny, one of the fastest ways to tell if you're in a schismatic group is are you reinterpreting church history? Are you going back and are you looking at the last 2,000 years and saying, well, the church was alive until John the Apostle died and then it came back with Martin Luther? Or are you saying, no, well, the church... The church lived until the year 500 and then it died and it came back with John Wesley. Or the church has only ever lived for a few decades every 2,000 years because there was a special renewal of the Holy Spirit as seen by evidences of miracles. You can tell really quick, if you're going to go back and you're going to redefine church history, you're part of or entering into some sort of schismatic understanding. So with saying that, we don't want to say that we know everything, and we are the perfect Christians. You know, I, I'm bringing this up to say we're part of the tradition of the church, and our subtitle is what is yes, our subtitle. Why you're wrong, and so are we. So that's kind of <laughs> that's that's kind of this is going to be yeah. my segue into that. Like, <laughs> what does that mean, Father Darrow? That was your idea. Yeah, yeah. So the subtitle for the podcast, not just this one, but just our our general podcast, is it too often? You know, you you end up chasing after all the mice while lions are devouring the land. And there's a time to go after the mice, but you got to get rid of the lions first. And so when we start looking at theological premises and truth and analyzing and assessing them, we're not doing it from the perspective of we've got everything nailed down precisely for ourselves because you start to learn that principle of semper reformanda. As the church is always growing and expanding, think about a vine, which is a scriptural image, that thing's got to be pruned back. So the branches, the developments, the theological ideas that develop off that vine sometimes have to be cut off. And sometimes the ones that are productive need to be pruned to be more productive. So we, as much as we are addressing these kinds of topics, like today with authority, recognize that we always have to be doing it in ourselves. So we don't want anyone thinking that we're coming off as if we have figured out all the answers that they need to obey because they've been wrong their whole lives. It's far more nuanced than that. We are drawing near to the Lord, and as we're ever drawing nearer and closer to him, the more insight and understanding he's giving us. And what we discern, what we begin to realize in that process, he's been doing that with the church from the beginning. And so the more you're led of the Spirit, the more you return to the older and deeper wells, and not newfangled things, fads that are labeled the Holy Spirit. So drawing that into authority... Caleb, what were some of the things that you said that we want to try to hit with authority? Thank, thanks for bringing that up. I think definitely you want to try, at least when I think of authority, I like to think of some sort of structure or reasoning for what should obey what. And of course, it's not as it's not as easy as that when we come to this topic. So I think we're going to try our best. But overall, I think the first question we got to ask is what even gives the church authority to do what it does? Like hierarchy, you mean? Yeah, or even just the fact of going back to the very beginning. Mean, my mind said, I think you start from the very beginning. It's from Christ, hmm. literally looking at the church and establishing it in that way. And that's from the point, you know, it's kind of like you 
uh, said ad fonte, which means back yeah, to the ad source. Fonte is back to like, the if source. you look back to the source of what Christianity comes from, it's going to be Christ, first off, giving that, raising up disciples, and going from there and starting to see what's going on. Because I think if you're ever going to look at what you're doing, you should always trace it back to wherever it started. Then you can see exactly how it fully develops and became what it is today. Are you ready for some mind-twisting perspectives? I feel like every single time we come on here, I always am. I have okay. to be. So here's my question for you, all right? And I'm going to give you guys, and so our audience knows, I'm going to give you like a full five seconds to think on this. When was the bishop ordained? Like the, the first one, you mean? No, think our bishop. When was our bishop ordained? Oh, man. Bishop John, I think, was, was uh, ordained in the 90s, like 95-ish. As a bishop, ordained, consecrated a bishop. Right, wasn't it then? No, no. no. I'm sorry. 2007, 2009? <laughs> I don't know. It was in the 2000s, but, but you guys are looking, you're looking at the wrong time. You're thinking the wrong way. Caleb, you want to take a guess at this? <laughs> when was, this is I, why I, it's I, mind I, spinning. I, I this no is idea. mind spinning. I'm going to just throw it out there. Can uh, I, was it this millennia? Can I jump to 33 AD by any chance? Well, no, Johnny, because we don't know that it was 33 AD. But yes, you're starting to follow the, the line of thinking here. Yeah, absolutely. A bishop, the bishops, because there's only one episcopacy. When did Jesus institute it? Easter Sunday. When he breathed on the apostles. This is when he institutes the Christian ministry. When he institutes, Caleb, what's going to become the church and okay. the authorities within the church. He breathes on them, says, receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Whoever sins you forgive, they're forgiven. Whoever sins you retain, they're retained. So every time a baptized, confirmed person is ordained to be a deacon, whenever a deacon is ordained to be a priest, whenever a priest is consecrated into the episcopacy, all of that sacramentally is recalling that singular past event when Jesus breathed on the apostles. In the same way that when we every time there's a celebration of the Eucharist, Christ isn't dying and rising again. No, 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 no. What's happening is the Spirit descending upon the elements, the Spirit descending upon the people is catching us up. Not just like um, he's catching us up in time, he's catching us up into that eternal sacrifice of Christ that's present in heaven because of his once-for-all death upon the cross. The same thing in, in ordination for holy orders. And this is what we mean by sacramental authority, the, sa the sacramental life and how sacraments order the church and the order in the church is an authority. So when we talk about bishops in the apostolic succession in contrast to people who are elected to serve as overseers, the principle of oversight is excellent. It's biblical. But when we talk about the apostolic succession, yes, we're talking about the transmission of the text of Scripture and the doctrine associated with it, but we're also talking about the presence right now of what Jesus did that Easter Sunday. And that's what we see in our bishops, our priests, and our deacons, each in their own order, in their own kind. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And my favorite type of questions are trick questions. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you, and that's a good point, well, Alex, right, because when, when we ask these questions, it, we go instantly to like some event right. in the recent mm -hmm. past, because that's how we've been taught as Enlightenment scientific people to evaluate the world. Our default thought process is not canonical. Right. Genesis to Revelation, understanding that the Scripture itself is sacramental. What did Jerome say, Johnny? To hear the Scripture read is to have the body and 
body and blood of Christ poured into your ears. That's right. That's right. So feeding upon Christ in the Scripture, as Cranmer said in the Scripture's fatness for the soul, says we're feeding upon Christ in Scripture. He's inculcating in us. He's bringing into us that sacramental concept of, of life itself. So when we talk about the apostolic succession, we talk about authority. Christ is truly present in the church because the church is members of himself. She's a member of himself. The church is always she, his bride. So we talk about that kind of authority. We, we, need to, we need to make sure that we consider the scriptural teaching, not just as something that happened in the historical past alone, but something that happened in the historical past that the Holy Spirit is bringing to bear right now. So with that in mind and drawing in some of my personal experience, I don't choose to be called, correct? I don't just choose to be in authority. I don't wake up one day and say, you know what? I'm going to go to Bible college. I'm going to go to seminary and I'm going to tell a bishop to make me a priest. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't. Okay. All right. Okay, that's good. Because uh, I've been part of places where that's where that's happened. What does the Bible say about the Levites, about the the, the priesthood in the Old Testament? How could you become a priest in the Old Testament? You were born into it, weren't you? Yeah, you could. If you weren't a Levite, scratch you can't you scratch that out. You mm -hmm. can't do that, right? Um, and even in amongst the tribe of Levi, you had the descendants of Aaron who served as the priest and high priest. Right? And you couldn't be maimed. You couldn't have any disabilities. Mm -hmm. A lot of things. There was a lot of stipulations to it. And Hebrews tells us that nobody ordains himself. So if it's that way under the law of Moses. See, grace doesn't mean it doesn't apply. Grace says, ah, it's fulfilled. Now here's the reality given to you. So if you couldn't call yourself under the old covenant, you couldn't ordain yourself under the old covenant, why do we think that we do that under the new? And that's because, as to Caleb's point about authority, we are Americans, so we get a good idea. And because we have a, a gift at something, we assume that's God's call to go do it, and we go do it. And because we're successful, just like starting a chain of McDonald's is, we call that the blessing of God. So I just want to read a, a little bit about the preface to the ordinal, because I know we're talking about authority, and it's not just about the offices. You know, it's just not about being a deacon priest. And there, there's more to it, of course. But for me and where I'm at in my journey, this says, from the earliest days of the church, these offices were always held in such reverent estimation that no one might presume to execute any of them without first being called, tried, examined, and ascertained to have such qualities as are requisite. So that's just, that's heavy right there because obviously you have to be called by God. You have to be tried and examined by your authority in the church. So no authority is taken amongst themselves. Is, is that right, safe to say? Yes. Like I just want to kind of specifically talk about this part of authority right now. And I know we're going to go into other parts of authority, but I just... To me, that just that's a heavy call, you know. Really, truly feeling called into into any kind of ordination, you know, whether you're called to be a deacon or a priest. And as you're working out these things, it's a it's a long process, Father Dale. You've went through it. I'm in the middle of it. I mean, it's it's at least uh, what five years on average. Well, more than that. But when you're actually ready to say, you know, I feel called, and it's like it's a long process. It takes time. Something that you brought up, Alex, that I think is really important is that whole trying and testing and going under the authority of church leadership now. Because 
to be honest, I've heard many like evangelicals who are not under apostolic succession or under a bishop, they won't say, I called myself. They'll say the Spirit called me, or I was led by the Spirit. But it's this vague individualistic call where there's not really a group outside of yourself other than your own purported calling of God. Johnny, that's an excellent insight. Think about the Apostle Paul, because he's the one that gets referenced. And people go to Galatians, where Paul says, I wasn't sent by any man, I was sent by Christ. We have to keep Paul in context, because in Galatians, he argues against circumcision quite vehemently, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he says, I wish they'd go, go the full way and finish the job, right? I mean, he's, <laughs> he's very clearly arguing uh, against circumcision. But read the book of Acts. He circumcises Timothy. Right. Right. So in the book of Acts, do we see that Paul just kind of up and up and out of the desert goes and starts preaching Christ without the church? No. No. He's on what we would say today, staff. He's a leader. He's one of the elders in Antioch when the Spirit, as you know, rightly says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. But who does the Spirit say that to? Does he say it to Barnabas and Saul themselves? No. The Spirit says it to the church, probably through one of the prophets that's there, so that the elders in the church, they lay their hands upon him and send him out. But here's, where, here's even more. Paul's out doing his apostolic ministry, sent out by Antioch, but what hasn't happened yet? He's not been recognized by the apostles in Jerusalem. So he's commanded, and he recounts this in Galatians, he has to go to Jerusalem and to build that connection with the apostles there. Christ isn't building many churches. He's building one church that meets in many places. So if the Spirit is calling us, if the Spirit is moving us, He is also going to move us towards those established structures, and He will move those established structures to recognize the grace He's put on us. It's not one or the other, it's both and. So inasmuch as someone says, I feel a calling from the Spirit to go X, Y, and Z, whatever that ministry is, and the Holy Spirit does this, He does do this, it's also then incumbent upon that person to submit to the church and for the leadership in the church to stay attentive to the Holy Spirit so that both things operate together, both venues operate together. So I've been, you know, I've been around here for a little bit, and I'm not talking about anybody specific, but, you know, there's been people that have came to you, Father Daryl, and said that I feel called. And one of the first uh, requirements is being in the church for two years. And just thinking about time and and that's just that's submitting to the church and just being a part of the church and and figuring out what in the world it means to be called because for me i just knew i was called in the ministry you know since i was 12 i the lord i really felt that and it wasn't until you know i was a youth pastor for several years and then i started coming here this year will be 2 years for me and where i've been here full time and during that time you're learning and understanding what all this means cuz a lot of people do grow up in a some kind of, of Catholic church or Orthodox church, yes. But there's also a lot of people that come from a background. I, I see a huge number of people coming from an evangelical background into back into a historical church. I think just learning to submit to authority is very much... Adam's not here today. He was on, I believe, one of our podcasts, but he was in the Army. And he he learned to submit to authority very well. So me and him talk about submitting to authority really well because, like we talked about, Father Darrell, I don't want to submit to anybody. We're Appalachian. Who does? Right. But that's, <laughs> that is, like you like we've all mentioned, that is totally against the history of the church. And that's something that is 
part of the process of being humble. It is. I mean, it's being humble, submitting. You know, that's 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 the humility of the church, submitting to Christ. Ultimately, I mean, that's what we're doing is submitting to Christ. But we have our authority in the church. It takes us into that second classification of hierarchy because when we're talking about the authorities in the church, they don't govern. I'll use that word. They don't govern or oversee in a cavalier way. To do so brings <laughs> divine displeasure. I'll put it mildly. So we have what are called formularies, meaning the prayer book is a formulary for us because it was designed and written by the apostolic ministry, the bishops, priests, and deacons. goes back 1549 as the first one, but there have been prayer books with prayers, but the liturgies, things have been like that in the church since the earliest of times. We see them in, in Judaism prior. The book of Scripture, like these 66 books of Scripture, add in the apocryphal texts, but what are they but liturgical books? They're books for worship. That's what they were written for. We know the 27 books that we call the New Testament are the New Testament and are called the New Testament because they were the books that were read when the church celebrated the New Testament, which is the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the New Covenant. So as the church celebrated the Eucharist, the New Testament, these are the writings that she read when she celebrated that meal that sacrifice of Christ once for all upon the cross, now coming to us through the bread and the wine, right? Or under the bread and the wine, if you want to say it that way. Say a church when they have Scripture and they have the Bible. I think there's that question that always kind of comes up in the mind where it's like, oh, so what are you saying? Which one supersedes the other? It's like, it's almost like they're trying to put one above another. But really, it's something that kind of works congruently. Yeah, so we, if you look at the Catholic, I don't mean Roman, but you look at the Catholic traditions, there's significant consensus on the doctrines, the creeds, the practices. You read out of the ordinal, Alex, and it doesn't even try to cite. It just says it's clear to everybody. If you go back and you look, that before the church had agreed upon the Nicene Creed, before the church had agreed upon the books of the New Testament, before the church had agreed upon, you pick anything that we prize well today. Before. Yeah. Yeah. There was the threefold ministry of the bishops, priests, and deacons as the continuity and the presence of the, the apostolic ministry. How do we then discern what is the correct interpretation of Scripture? How do we discern what the Scripture is? These kinds of things. This is where the church becomes incredibly important, because the church isn't something abstract. Paul tells us that the church is the pillar of truth. It's a, it's a buttress of truth in the world. The church is. He doesn't say that about the Scripture. He says the church is. So we have to ask ourselves, what constitutes the church? What is she? Who is she? And so this is where the formularies help us in our Anglican tradition. Rome articulates, I'll, I'll, I'll just say their formularies, the scripture, the magisterium, the teaching office, and then the tradition. They, they make them all equal. The Orthodox, Orthodox churches, Eastern Orthodox churches, same set of what I'll call formularies, arranged and thought of in a little bit different way. In the Anglican paradigm, we say the scripture is the infallible authority. But there are other authorities. So we wouldn't say that they're infallible, but there are authorities that need to be obeyed nonetheless. And so after the infallible scripture is tradition, capital T tradition, the creeds and the councils, the, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed, then the councils. How many councils, Johnny? There's seven ecumenical councils. And, and m most Anglicans would say we adhere to the four, first four and then to the last three regarding the Christological, the, the teachings about Jesus and the clarifications. 
Because, and I'll give you an example. In the Seventh Ecumenical Council, they said that the church must use icons. Well, one of the premises, one of the presuppositions for our Anglican distinctive is if you can't see it clearly taught in Scripture, you cannot require it absolutely. Now, if a bishop comes by and he says, I would like for you to have icons in your church. Okay. But to say you have to have, like, so this is what I mean by the practices are so very similar in this sense, but there's a different way we look at the hierarchy. So for us, it's infallible scripture, the tradition of the church, the consensus teaching of the fathers, and some of the ways for people to really start to evaluate that. One, think about the apostolic ministry. Is the church you're in in an apostolic succession? Another way, think about the doctrines about Mary. Hold on, back that bus up, right? (laughs) Wait a second, are you saying that she was immaculately conceived? Are you saying that she was taken bodily into heaven? Are you saying that she never died? Hold on, hold on, that's kind of my thing. Just before you jump right into some of those those deeper issues, um, pause for a second and ask yourself, what does your church say about her? Because the majority of those traditions, even the ones that we necessarily may not agree with, some that Rome has made day for day in some cases, didn't fall out of the sky. Where did they come from? And then why is your church not remotely considered or even thought about her other than when they plug her in at Christmas to light up the nativity set? What does the scripture say? I don't want to get too much into Mary, but she's the blessed virgin and will be called blessed by all generations. So if all you're doing is plugging her in at Christmas, you're not calling her blessed. So there's a whole lot here. So let me, let me come back to the formularies. The scripture the tradition, and then reason, capital R, reason. So how do we logically process these things? How do, we, how do we see them embodied in our churches? And that's when we can start talking about lowercase t traditions. We can start talking about customs and rites and ceremonies. And the church, in the 39 articles, which is another formulary for us, which were historical points, 39 points, because of issues they had at the time, the church has the authority to change rites and ceremonies if it's required. Because what happens when you start changing rites and ceremonies? What is, what is the unintended statement when you do that? That they're wrong? That they're wrong or that the church has been wrong. Okay. So the longer a, okay. a custom or a tradition has been in place, the more people just associate it with something that's absolutely true anyway. Or authoritatively true, even though we wouldn't say infallibly true. So this gets into some of these nuances. We have these formularies so that we've got the Book of Common Prayer. We've got the ordinal. We've got the 39 articles. And then we've got this classification on how we process what's truth because the church is the pillar of truth. Not my private interpretation. Not my dream or vision from the Holy Spirit. Not my, follow me, not my denomination of 10 churches, 50 churches, 200 churches, 10,000 churches that is 125 years old. I mentioned the the Church of Latter-day Saints earlier. That starts in the early 1800s. It is the fourth largest, quote, denomination of Christians in the United States. Yeah. So what what I'm thinking, I'm just thinking. So what I like about this is, you know, with all the things that you mentioned, it all is rooted in Scripture. Like, people don't just draw things out of thin air to say, you know what, I think we should start doing this. And I feel like a lot of people that I talk to about stuff, like, well, when did the church start doing this? And for you, Father Darrell, one of your your answers that you always say is, no, you got to think about it like this. When did the church stop? 
So there's a lot of practices that the church hasn't, I don't mean the little church, little C church stopped doing over the last several hundred years when it's, it's been going on for since the beginning of Christian history. So mm-hmm. that's one of my favorite things to think about now. Like I, one thing that I've learned is that I really need to change my thinking. Like we've already done a little bit of changing our mind thinking today. Yeah, definitely. So just looking at questions from all angles is, is the best way that I've been able to really try to understand this. Definitely. I think just getting different people's perspective and anything, really, you got to start to understand how people think and why they're thinking that way. I, mean, I think it's absolutely necessary. If you actually want to establish something, which well, you want to start to believe it, you do have to start looking at all these different possible answers. Yeah. Well, so what is, the, what is the driving principle behind the Reformation 500 years ago? It was that the church had adopted and grown and taken on a bunch of aberrant practices that needed to be corrected. And so you get reformations and something that's been called the counter-reformation with Trent, with the Roman Catholics. I don't like counter-reformation like that because they were responding to those errors themselves. A lot of people have not read the decrees and the canons of the Council of Trent, but they rebuke and chastise the misuse of indulgences and, and advocation of, and invocation of the saints as well. They still maintain them, but they their point being, reformation was across the western part of Christendom. Today, the Reformation is redefined to mean my own personal reading of Scripture and what I believe God's telling me, and that was never the intent of the early what are called magisterial reformers. It was ad fontes, back to the sources, what does Scripture clearly, canonically teach, and then we'll look at how the Church has understood that, because that's going to be the way that we can safeguard ourselves from falling into the error of the modern age, whatever that modern age looks like. So bringing that up, one of the things that I get from people, especially people that aren't even in the church or, or Christians at all, is that people really abuse their power. I know we at the beginning we talked about power and authority, and people really abuse their power and in, in controlling the world. You know, we've heard that. I, I've I've heard that. You know, I got I got some good friends that are wonderful conspiracy theorists, and <laughs> they're wonderful to hear about. But like you hear about all these things about power and and how the church was made to control everybody and things like that. And I think a lot of that is coming from that medieval time. You know, people are seminary. Uh, how do you say that word? Paying. Simony. Simony. That's right. Yeah. You're paying to be into the position right. because if you're a bishop, you're a lord over that property, you know, and you're making money. So, and I feel like we're, we're able to still see that today where there's a lot of power practices. People are really hedging their positions as uh, a leader and they're hedging those positions to bring power and, I think with power, you know, we understand that it's coming. It brings money. And I think that's kind of where people have so much problem with power and authority and all this stuff. A lot of people just reject it all. Alex, there's no difference between what's going on today on the television with word of faith preachers and prosperity preachers who are saying, send in your love gift and I'll pray over this prayer cloth or I'll pray over this anointing oil and I'll send it to you and you're going to get your miracle. There's no difference between that and the sale of indulgences in the past, because in both cases there's the exchange of money for some spiritual benefit, whether it's a spiritual blessing now or to get you out of purgatory. I mean, the categories are different theologically, but it's the same practice, and both of those are things that are, at best, misuses of stuff that's in Scripture. I mean, well, somebody could say, Caleb, indulgences aren't in the Bible. Well, under the law of Moses, if you didn't have an animal, you would bring money to the temple. 
So you see that there, so let's take it then and abuse that into indulgences. Or let's take God blesses those who give. All right, so let's abuse it to say, now you give me all your money and he'll bless you. You see what I mean? So we see a lot of the same nonsensical or non-canonical practices that are rampant in the churches today. And so we always have to be going back and obeying the Scripture, and it's always incumbent upon the church to teach and advocate those scriptural principles and to say to those who are sensing that call from the Spirit into ordained service, praise God, now let's begin the process of formation towards that end. I agree. Even think of the phrase words, all evil exists from the fact of twisting what is good. And that's what you usually see. Like you see a good thing happening, but then someone wants to twist it around and throw in selfishness in there. And it just makes it so everything else starts to become what it wasn't supposed to be. It mm-hmm. starts to become something it never was even intended to be. And you can always see that happening. And authority, that like we have those instances where we have indulgence selling or the word of faith preachers. Those men and women, they they should be terrified. Authority is not something, biblically speaking, authority is not something that's supposed to be held over or, put another way, used for abuse like we're talking about now. You're supposed to be a shepherd. These ministers are supposed to be shepherds helping the people, being with the people, guiding the people. Something that terrifies me, I felt the call towards ordained ministry, I've gone through congregational discernment, something that terrifies me is the fact that those who go into ordained ministry, those who go, those who teach in general, need to be watching what they teach because you will be held, held at an account. The flock that's under these teachers and these ministers, that's not their own flock. That's God's flock. That's God's people. Our authority is never to manipulate. Mm-hmm. Paul says, guard your life and your doctrine closely. So you'll have people that guard their doctrine, but they don't guard their lives. So they will create scandals, or they'll deviate from practices to accommodate well-intentioned belief systems. So this is something that we're always to be on guard against and aware of in ourselves. Well, I think that about wraps up kind of an understanding of authority, I would say, and how it's being done for the church and the reasoning why it's being done. Because it's not really just a one overall answer. It's kind of the consideration of a lot of different things. So. Good rule of thumb, Caleb. If your answer can go into a tweet, it's probably not comprehensive enough. Fair enough. 160 <laughs> characters or less. <laughs> I, mean, it is, I, don't know. I think it might be 240 now, but still, it's <laughs> not quite it enough. <laughs> Trying to make a bold statement. We actually have Aiden over here. He's going to be asking our questions for this week. Who are you, Aiden? Uh, I am the son of Father Daryl Fitzwater. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I know. <laughs> First of all, we want to we, we we found out where he got these questions from. Aiden, wh- where did these questions come from? Um, some people I know. Just some friends, some people that you you play Xbox with. Where where are we getting these questions from? People that I play Xbox with, okay. but they're from everywhere. Okay, so these are your Xbox friends. So they had some questions about religion that he wanted to bring up. So here we go. So I'm going to start with the easier ones. Uh, what do angels look like? Well, in, a- in Scripture, the angels have a variety of appearances. Angels are different one from another. So they're not like people, although they can take that appearance, they can take that form. 
But uh, we've got angels, the seraphim have six wings. They're fiery angels that fly around God's throne. Two cover their eyes, two cover their feet, and two they fly with because God's too holy to look at, and he's too holy to stand before. We've got the cherubim, which are angels that have four heads, four faces, covered with eyes. Let's see. We've got angels that look like people. We've got angels that carry swords. I think they get the idea. They're pretty crazy-looking things. <laughs> pretty terrifying. Next question is, are exorcists ever scared? Probably. Exorcists, those who engage in exorcism would experience fear if they have not, if they're new. If, they, if they're new, when they're newly beginning the process and those that are coming up with a demonic entity that is being resistant. And in those cases, I don't know that I would necessarily say that they're scared or fearful as much as they are weary. So those that, be, that are beginning that process can find it fearful, trepidation with it. Next one is, why is fasting important? Fasting is important because we have to rule and govern our bodies. If we don't learn to discipline our bodies, we will be governed by our passions. And one of the biggest passions that people deal with in the United States, because of all that we have, is gluttony. So they're governed by their gut. Paul actually talks about this in Philippians when he says that their God is their stomach. So fasting is a way to teach the body, you do not decide what I do. The, the body was created for the Lord, Paul says. So it, it, in that sense, that's part of what's going on. And then because we are taking the time to discipline ourselves and to draw near to God as we're fasting, we are also tuning our, our minds and our hearts in to hear what he says to us. Why does it seem like Christianity is such a big building block for media, movies, TV shows, and whatnot? Because religion is always utilized by people who want to make more money. And some Christians are so uh, carnal, they're so desirous of the spotlight, they will let themselves and their positions be manipulated by those people who want to make money off of them so that they can feel more important about themselves. Very rarely is it because it's the pure word of God that's bring, being preached and taught for those people who get manipulated. You do have some very sizable ministries that are incredible. They're doing great work, and I'm not disparaging them at all. But for those that take the gospel and make merchandise of it to pad their pockets to live lavishly, Scripture speaks pretty, pretty powerfully about that. Next question is, why does it seem that Christianity is mocked, per se, more than other religions? Because the devil hates God. What does the churches stand on other religions? Other religions are like math problems. So uh, 2 plus 2 equals 4. But if you said the answer was 5, well, 5 is more correct than 10. So it's still wrong, but it's not as wrong. So when we're talking about other religions, and all truth is God's truth, of those other religions, which most closely approximate biblical truth and how then do we speak to people in those other religions about the truth that's found in Jesus Christ? Because he's the truth. Last question. What does the church's stand on gender identification? The church's teaching on gender identity is that in the beginning, God made them male and female. So there are only two biological sexes, male and female. That's what the church has taught, Genesis to Revelation. And that's what she's always going to teach. And you may find uh, various teachers today in certain quadrants of the church who want to take that and change it, but they can't. They, they can change it like in their teaching, 
but it's not going to change the, the truth itself. So there's just two, male and female. Awesome. Thank you. Well, those are some pretty good questions. If uh, anybody has any questions or anybody wants to send any more questions in, uh, where can they send them in? At? Just send them to me, Daryl, D-A-R-R-Y-L, at Ascension, A-S-C-E-N-S-I-O-N-W-V dot org. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for tuning in and uh, listening to us uh, on the topic of authority. And I uh, hope you enjoyed it. See you guys next week. Bye-bye.